June 6th, 1944. A date that has become forever ingrained in the minds of the Western world, as the day freedom began the long march toward the defeat of tyranny. Between 1939 and 1941, the forces of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany blazed a path of destruction, oppression, and murder across the map of Europe and beyond, and it seemed Hitler's ambition could never be satisfied. The world was his goal, death his tool. Only a badly beaten and desperately holding on Britain managed to stem the wound long enough to guarantee that all of Europe wouldn't be draped in the swastika. And yet within just three years, Britain, Canada, the United States, and many other allied nations would amalgamate into a single force, and in one swift move, drive a dagger into the side of Hitler's dreams of total European supremacy. That dagger was driven in on the beaches of Normandy, June 1944, and then twisted into a lethal wound that would never close. This is the story of Operation Overlord, the story of D-Day. Welcome to Wars of the World. On December 7th, 1941, Germany's ally, Japan, attacked the United States in the Pacific. In support of this Asian ally and in defiance of his generals, Hitler declared war on the United States on December 11th of that year. The vast industrial and agricultural base of the United States, to say nothing of the immense manpower that could now be pitted against Hitler, gave the Allied powers a new and wide array of possibilities in defeating the Nazi tyranny in Europe. The only question was how. Both Stalin in Moscow and many American military leaders pushed for a second front to be opened as soon as possible, most likely summer 1942. But Churchill and Roosevelt were far more cautious. British Commonwealth forces were still locked in bitter combat with the German and Italian forces in North Africa, a campaign that may have to be abandoned or downscaled to support a direct invasion of Western Europe. There was also the concern that little preparation work would have been made ahead of such an invasion, such as building up the supply chain, gathering intelligence on German defenses, the training of an invasion force for the task at hand, the weakening of German defenses in the build-up to the invasion, and the disruption to the great German war machine through a sustained air campaign. As such, to Stalin's dismay, he was told that the invasion of Western Europe was to be postponed until 1943. However, Churchill had a promise to keep. A deal had been made with Stalin that troops would be landed in Europe in 1942, and so Churchill authorized a large-scale raid on the French town of Dieppe to take place in August of 1942. While nowhere near the scale of a full-blown invasion, the raid was intended to remind the Germans that the Western Front had not ended and would hopefully draw German troops away from the Soviet Front, where at this time, they were still advancing towards Moscow. Conducted primarily by Canadian troops, the move would prove a disaster. Dubbed Operation Jubilee, The 10,500-strong force was put ashore with instructions to capture the nearby port, demolish German defenses, and acquire as much intelligence on German operations as possible before withdrawing. Yet, despite landing tanks and with heavy air and naval support, within just six hours of the operation commencing, the survivors were in full retreat. Nearly 1,500 Allied soldiers were killed and many more captured. Allied air forces suffered at the hands of a skilled German air force, while the Royal Navy lost a destroyer supporting the landings and a number of landing craft. For those with the gung-ho attitude of let's just go, it was a sobering and deeply painful lesson 
in just what storming fortress Europe from the sea might cost if it all went wrong. However, dismissing the idea of an invasion of Europe was of course totally unthinkable. Meanwhile, in North Africa, British Commonwealth forces under the command of the charismatic Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery had succeeded in stalling German Field Marshal Rommel's forces at El Alamein, and with US forces landing in Tunisia in Operation Torch, the Germans and Italians were slowly being crushed from all sides. With a direct assault on France deemed impractical until 1944, attention instead turned to invading Italy and storming north toward Nazi Germany, via what Churchill described as Europe's soft underbelly. Having expelled Rommel from Africa on June 9th, 1943, Allied forces invaded Sicily and then Italy proper in September, by which time many Italians sought to overthrow fascist dictator Benito Mussolini and come over to the Allied side. This initially sped up the Allied advance through southern Italy, but it became bogged down again, thanks to well-entrenched German and pro-fascist Italian troops. With German resources now committed on two intensive fronts and having to occupy their captured lands with Allied forces now better prepared, attention began to turn back towards preparation for an invasion of Western Europe. Two questions were immediately asked in the highest echelons of power. First, who should be in overall command of the operation? And second, where should the invasion be carried out? In both Britain and the United States, the war had produced military leaders who had become household names and were as such revered by their respective peoples. In Britain, the favorite to lead an assault on Fortress Europe was, of course, Field Marshal Montgomery, fresh off his success in North Africa and Italy. However, with the majority of troops now being American, it was felt to be more fitting that an American should lead the campaign. And in late 1943, that job was given to one General Dwight David Eisenhower. Eisenhower's selection was not without its controversy. Other generals, such as Montgomery and the US's boisterous General Patton, had seen extensive combat in World War I, whereas Eisenhower served the entirety of the war in the United States. While he had overseen the successful Torch and Italian landings, his lack of combat experience would cast a dark shadow over many of his decisions in the build-up to June 1944. However, Eisenhower had one crucial skill for the planning and execution of the soon-to-be-named Operation Overlord that no other general seemed to possess. He was a master at getting the various nationalities and the personalities of their leaders to unify into a single force. It was thanks to Eisenhower that D-Day was not three separate operations carried out by the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada, but one all-encompassing invasion force intent on liberating Europe from Hitler's tyranny. As for where this invasion would take place, it was universally agreed that the ideal location to invade Fortress Europe would be at the Pas-de-Calais. This was where the English Channel was at its most narrow, allowing for a shorter crossing, decreasing the time the invasion force was most vulnerable. It also afforded them maximum air cover from bases in Southeast England, but the problem, of course, was that the Germans knew this too. As such, they had deployed some of their best troops, the German 15th Army under General von Samoth, who were afforded some of the best German equipment and strongest fortifications to hold off an invasion force. Hitting Calais, even successfully, would result in a bloodbath, slowing any advance into mainland Europe until replacements could be sourced. As Chief of Staff to the Supreme Allied Commander, a role abbreviated to the much less of a mouthful Cossack, it was down to British Army Lieutenant General Frederick E. Morgan to recommend an alternative. In a meeting with Allied leaders in Quebec, Canada in May of 1943, he gave his recommendation after tirelessly examining all the options available based on enemy disposition and the units and equipment that would be available to the Allies for the invasion. Quote, I have come to the conclusion that, in view of the limitations in resources imposed by my directives, we may be assured of a reasonable chance of success on the 1st of May 1944 
if we concentrate our efforts on an assault across the Norman beaches. It was, therefore, decided. When the Allies were ready and a date set, a day that would become known as D-Day, the Allied forces would invade Normandy. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Germany's extraordinary success in 1940, which led to the fall of Western Europe under the German jackboot, was now a source of great concern for Hitler. For on the defensive, it presented him with an enormous coastline stretching from the north of Spain up into Scandinavia, from which his forces now had to defend against an allied invasion. Perhaps conscious of the fact that his own forces had been successful against France by simply going around the seemingly impenetrable Maginot Line in 1940, he outlined a strategy of building powerful fortifications, supported by military and aircraft as far as was possible along this coastline, to prevent allies from breaching Fortress Europe. This also allowed him to keep as many of his troops as he could on the Eastern Front and in Italy, where, on both counts, he was in retreat by mid-1944. Dubbed the Atlantic War, the Germans built vast numbers of concrete bunkers along 4,000 miles of coastline, broken apart by natural obstacles, man-made ones, and numerous minefields. The Dieppe raid and numerous smaller operations conducted by British commandos only heightened Hitler's fears that he was exposed to invasion from the West, and he ordered the war be given high priority. Yet, compared to other fronts, the troops based on the wall had a relatively quiet time between 1941 and 1944. However, even with troops from occupied countries filling their ranks, the Germans did not have enough men to defend the entire wall equally. In August of 1943, a new commander arrived on the Atlantic Wall that gave the Allies cause for concern. Field Marshal Rommel, the Desert Fox himself, arrived to oversee the construction of defenses and formulate a plan of action with which to repel an Allied invasion. Despite his Africa Corps having been repelled from North Africa, he was still highly respected as a competent military leader in Allied circles. Construction of the Atlantic Wall had, before Rommel's arrival, ground down to an apathetic effort by the German officers. However, the field marshal's influence was immediately felt by his subordinates, who suddenly found themselves with vastly increased workloads. But as well as having to contend with resistance below him, Rommel was also contending with his increasing unpopularity with the German high command. Some saw him as a failure following the defeat in North Africa, while others viewed him as a rival for influence with Hitler, while others still simply didn't like him. In outlining his plan to rebel an Allied invasion, Rommel requested that German tank forces spearheaded by infantry be held close to the coastline to respond quickly to any Allied landings. Such powerful tank forces could devastate the infantry trying to wade ashore and prevent the establishment of an Allied beachhead from where fresh troops and tanks could be deployed. However, both Hitler and the German commander-in-chief, Field Marshal Gerhard von Rundstedt, were opposed to Rommel's request. They instead adopted the policy of grouping their tank forces together away from the coastline. So once the main Allied assault came, which they were still convinced would ultimately be from Calais, the panzers could be thrust against it and drive the Allies back into the sea. Nevertheless, Rommel remained committed to his duty to defend Germany's French prize as best he could. 
as well as the bunker construction effort, he also instigated an immense mining operation in and around the French coastline, and impressed upon his subordinates the importance of their work. Less than two months before D-Day, in April of 1944, he was inspecting one of countless French beaches he was tasked with defending, when he outlined to his adjutant, Captain Helmuth Lang, his view of the overall situation Germany found itself in at the time. Quote, the war will be won or lost on the beaches. We'll only have one chance to stop the enemy, and that's while he's in the water. Believe me, Lang, the first 24 hours of the invasion will be decisive for the Allies as well as Germany. It will be the longest day. While Rommel was inspecting his defenses, the Allied commanders decided to test their equipment and readiness for a major seaborne invasion and initiated Operation Tiger. 23,000 American troops were assembled with their equipment before boarding troop ships in British harbors, which then circled around the south of England to launch a mock invasion of the beaches along the Devonshire coast that had been dressed up to resemble the Atlantic Wall fortifications. To add to the realism, the beaches were heavily shelled by American and British warships both to understand how their equipment, such as tanks, would function on beaches riddled with craters, and to help get the American troops comfortable with riding in landing craft towards a beach with live shells going over their heads. Witnessed by Eisenhower himself, the invasion of Devon began on April 27th and was wrought with problems. Due to miscommunication, a group of American landing craft made it to the beach at Slapton Sands while the Royal Navy was still shelling the area, resulting in several American casualties. With the shelling stopped, the rest of the initial force made their landings, with a second invasion planned for the next day. However, during the night of April 27th and 28th, the remainder of the mock invasion force still at sea were cruising through Lime Bay when they were spotted by a group of marauding German E-boats. British warships protecting the exercise had already detected the E-boats and were moving to intercept, but were unable to warn the American troop ships because they weren't provided with the American radio frequencies. At around 130 hours on April 28th, the E-boats attacked with torpedoes and 40 millimeter guns. In the chaos and carnage that followed, 749 Americans were killed, two troop ships were sunk, and a third was badly damaged. Tragically, many of those who drowned did so only because they had not received proper training in the use of life jackets. Like Dieppe, Operation Tiger was a sobering reminder that any invasion of Fortress Europe was going to be difficult and costly if not properly prepared for. The fact that such a disaster could happen off the English coastline without the German E-boats having any support from shore gunners or aircraft only highlighted the dangers of transporting such huge numbers of men by sea. In fact, Tiger almost scuppered D-Day in 1944 altogether. This was because several officers who were now listed as missing in the weeks after the tragedy had knowledge of the upcoming invasion of Normandy, and the fear was that they had been picked up by the E-boats and then broken under German interrogation. These worries were eventually dismissed. D-Day would continue as planned. A Little Bit De Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit De Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. final planning of the invasion of Normandy relied heavily on ascertaining just what the Germans had placed around the landing zones. Crucially, this had to be done in such a way so as not to alert the Germans as to what was going on. Thus, beginning in April of 1944, the RAF and USAAF began an intensive photo reconnaissance effort aimed at building a full tactical picture of the situation in Normandy and the surrounding regions. 
using high-speed fighter aircraft such as the Spitfire, the P-38 Lightning, and the P-51 Mustang. The reconnaissance pilots flew daring, ultra-low-level missions over German positions all along the European coastline. Normandy received no more or less attention than anywhere else. Thus, it was not signaled to German intelligence as a point of special interest. Flying at such low levels, where trees and power lines were as much a threat as enemy gunners, afforded Allied commanders extremely detailed images of the German defenses. Allied reconnaissance pilots' missions were made all the more dangerous by the fact that many of their aircraft lacked guns to defend themselves, to instead have more fuel and greater speed once that fuel had been exhausted. Over 3,200 missions were flown in direct support of Operation Overlord and in conjunction with the French Resistance, who highlighted targets of interest for future flights. The Resistance also monitored German movements and made estimates on the numbers of troops deployed at the landing zones. Perhaps even more dangerous were the operations carried out by specialized boat crews who had previously been involved in assisting commando raids. Their job was to sneak up on the French coastline to locate fixed German defenses designed to rupture landing craft and also take depth measurements on approach to the beaches. This would give Allied commanders the maximum information on the landing zones, allowing them to fine-tune their plans. One interesting and less obvious but ultimately highly important part of the Allied intelligence efforts involved a call put out by the BBC for anyone in Britain who had photographs taken while on holiday in France prior to the outbreak of the war. A staggering 10 million images and descriptions of the French coastline were handed over to the War Office. But just as important as the effort to gather intelligence on enemy positions and defenses was the need to feed Germany's own intelligence network with false information. D-Day would provide the impetus for probably the most successful counterintelligence program in history. Dubbed appropriately as Operation Bodyguard, Allied intelligence officers concocted a string of elaborate plans designed to mislead their German counterparts regarding almost every aspect of the D-Day landings. This would prevent the Germans from being able to maximize their defensive posture around Normandy and delay the arrival of reinforcements which could see the landings become bogged down on the beaches or even fail altogether. One of the biggest assets, albeit unwitting ones in achieving this goal, were the Germans themselves. While they had militarily dominated the European continent since 1940, their intelligence agencies were rather lacking compared to the British and American efforts. While coding devices such as the famed Enigma machine initially allowed Germany to communicate with their forces without fear of interception, their overconfidence in such devices led to them underestimating the Allies' ability to crack their communications, which of course they eventually did, even using primitive computers to do so. As well as learning the disposition of German forces along the Atlantic Wall, Breaking the German codes allowed the Allies a glimpse into the mindset of the German High Command, surrounding the defense of occupied France. It also allowed them to gauge the effectiveness of their misinformation efforts, so as to better tailor future ones to make them more effective at making the Germans think the invasion of Europe was coming from anywhere other than Normandy. A situation aided by the fact that Hitler himself was convinced that any invasion crossing the channel would arrive in Calais. Under the umbrella of bodyguard, Operation Fortitude sought to fuel Hitler's belief by creating a false picture of Allied armies amassing in England and Scotland that, to German intelligence, made it appear as though the Allies were intent in landing in Calais and Norway. Planned by British Army Colonel Noel Wilde, the operation called for the creation of dummy trucks, tanks, aircraft, and even units which could be photographed by high-flying German reconnaissance aircraft. In photographs taken from such high altitude, it would be impossible to tell the difference between the real equipment for Normandy and the fake ones for Fortitude. In fact, some of the equipment looked so real that even people on the ground mistook them for genuine. But Fortitude went beyond building replica tanks. Fortitude also involved fake radio broadcasts intended for the Germans to intercept 
which would correspond with the fake picture the Allies were trying to build with their dummy army. A number of secret agents were also employed to drip feed the Germans information, but perhaps the most direct method employed was the decision that, for every two radar stations Allied Air Forces attacked around Normandy leading up to D-Day, two more in the surrounding areas should be attacked even if they would have little impact on the actual landings. This would only further confuse the German picture, and help keep them convinced that Normandy was a decoy operation for Calais. By the time of D-Day itself, German intelligence were still convinced that as many as 10 divisions were waiting to storm Calais, even when the numbers of allies in Normandy were entering the hundreds of thousands. But Fortitude's work didn't stop on D-Day, instead it continued its efforts to deceive the Germans that Normandy was a decoy, if only to delay the redeployment of German forces for as long as possible. Under Operation Bodyguard, similar deception campaigns were undertaken that the invasion was actually intended for more southern regions of France, the Balkans, or even neutral Sweden. The eventual success of D-Day can in no small part be attributed to this elaborate and highly effective deception operation. Planning for the D-Day invasion never stopped as the intelligence picture constantly changed, but overall, objectives remained the same. An airborne element would go in first to capture strategic locations such as bridges and to destroy artillery positions that would threaten the beaches. The main force would then storm five beaches, each with their own code words. American beaches were Omaha and Utah. British beaches were Sword and Gold. The sole Canadian beach was Juno. However, this is not to say that these beaches were assaulted exclusively by their designated nations. Far from it, there were a number of specialized personnel ready and waiting to be transferred from one nation's beach to another if they were needed. Additionally, on the ground, in the air, and at sea, there were those who had escaped their own countries before they fell to the Nazi onslaught, and were now eager to start taking their land back, and likely get some revenge too. As June arrived, Eisenhower set the historic date for the invasion of Normandy as June 5th, 1944. At 20 harbors in the UK, men and equipment were being crammed on board troop ships, ready to head out to their rendezvous point, designated Piccadilly Circus, southeast of the Isle of Wight. With special attention having been given to their protection, following the disaster of Operation Tiger. The seaborne element of D-Day was dubbed Operation Neptune, yet despite the secrecy surrounding the whole affair, it was impossible to conceal from the Germans the vast movement of ships from British ports, leading to the Germans conducting an attack using gun and torpedo boats. This attack was repelled by overpowering Allied warships, but the threat of further assaults remained. With the Allies now having extensive experience in amphibious assault operations, much of the equipment seemed tailor-made for storming the beaches of Normandy. The American DUKW, for example, was essentially an amphibious truck, which could not only bring supplies to the beach, but crucially, drive them straight to where they would be needed. They could also be fitted with various heavy weapons, although, being unarmored, they were not ideal fighting vehicles. One vehicle that was, however, was the British Churchill AVRE, meaning Armoured Vehicle Royal Engineer. This was a basic Churchill tank chasis, but with its main gun replaced by a petard spigot mortar, which fired a devastating 40-pound bomb, known as a flying dustbin. The Churchill AVRE was adept at destroying the tough fortifications expected on the Normandy beaches. The basic Churchill itself also having excellent performance in climbing obstacles. The AVRE was one of a number of so-called funnies, tanks modified for specific purposes in support of the landings. Other funnies included the Swimming Sherman, also known as the DD or Donald Duck Tank. This was a Sherman tank with a canvas flotation screen and propellers to power it through the water. Unlike tanks designed from the start to be amphibious, which often had to sacrifice armor or firepower for buoyancy, 
Once the swimming Sherman was on the beach, it could ditch the flotation screen, and it was just another M4 Sherman. The swimming Sherman was so successful, it was used on all five beaches at Normandy. Not forgetting Rommel's insistence on mining the beaches, both the Churchill and Sherman also had mine-clearing variants, such as the Crab. The Crab was a Sherman tank, fitted with a roller that spun heavy chains into the ground to detonate the mines safely away from the tank. Fearing that armored vehicles may get bogged down on the wet, sandy beaches, variants of the Churchill were fitted with a roller to lay reinforced matting down, thus creating a surface on which they could drive up onto harder ground. This tank became affectionately known by its crews as the carpet layer. One invention that was designed specifically for D-Day was the Mulberry Harbor System, the purpose of which was to ease and speed up the unloading process so that Allied troops were supplied as they advanced across France after eventually breaking out from Normandy. The Mulberry Harbors would be towed out to Normandy and assembled like a vast jigsaw puzzle at Omaha and Gold Beach. As more and more men embarked on their ships to the rendezvous point, nerves among the Allies were understandably beginning to fray. A growing cause for concern was the seemingly worsening weather, the one factor that neither the Allies nor the Germans had any control over. Clear skies were needed for the full moon to help with the navigation during airborne operations, while the need for calm water in the seaborne phase was obvious. With so much resting on the weather conditions being just right for an airborne and seaborne invasion of Normandy, Eisenhower called a meeting of some of his most senior officers at Southwick House at 415 hours on the morning of June 4th to discuss the situation and whether it may be necessary to delay the invasion. Ultimately, the decision on whether or not to launch the invasion on June 5th rested solely on his shoulders, but he would be making that decision based on the predictions of a lanky RAF officer by the name of Group Captain James Stagg. Stagg was Operation Overlord's chief meteorological officer, and it was his role to interpret the information that was coming in from weather stations, observation posts, and even combat aircraft flying weather patrols across the British Isles. And it was not good news. Stagg, being a non-combat officer and holding a rank equivalent to that of a colonel in the army, had the unenviable task of telling a room full of some of the most important leaders of the Allied war effort that in his opinion, the invasion should be delayed by 24 hours to allow the weather to improve. Many of those in attendance, such as Field Marshal Montgomery, scoffed at the suggestion and insisted they go as planned on the 5th. They knew they only had a three-day window for the moon to be in the right phase, and delays could see the forced postponement of the operation for weeks. Worse still for Stagg's case, American meteorologists using a different prediction system believed that a high-pressure front was going to force the bad weather away from the landing zones, leaving them with clear skies on June 5th. But Stagg remained adamant in his recommendation to hold off for 24 hours. After listening to Stagg's case, Eisenhower reluctantly agreed, and he gave the order that the invasion was to be postponed until June 6th. Stagg would be proven correct when, on the night of June 4th and the morning of June 5th, the landing zones were lashed with terrible weather. Finally, as the weather began to improve on June 5th, 1944, what had been the original date for D-Day, the preparation phase began. Minesweepers snuck up to the Normandy coast to begin their work clearing a path for the troop ships, while a massive force of over 1,200 combat aircraft began softening up defenses. Through the night and then into D-Day itself, the weakened Luftwaffe would be outnumbered in the air by almost 10 to 1, allowing the Allies to effectively control the skies, allowing them to conduct close air support missions. Rocket-firing aircraft like the British Typhoon would become heavily engaged in clearing away fortifications and destroying tanks. As the Allied troops realized that this was it, they reminded themselves of Eisenhower's words. Quote, Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. 
we will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Meanwhile, far from the commotion at countless airfields in the UK and aboard the vast fleets of ships in the English Channel, at his residence high in the Bavarian Alps, the Fuhrer Adolf Hitler settled in for a relatively peaceful evening at the so-called Wolf's Lair. He and his entourage of aides watched newsreels in his private cinema before retreating into the lounge area, where Hitler lectured them on his thoughts of the day, be they of war, politics, or his views on the great men of history. Looking back on that evening, Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels said before his death that the evening of June 5th, 1944, was like what he called the good old times, as the Nazi regime was on the rise to its ultimate power. Goebbels retired to bed earlier than Hitler, who had been having trouble sleeping, and it wasn't until 3 a.m. that the Fuhrer finally went to bed, sleep coming courtesy of medication. German intelligence was already picking up indications that something big was getting underway across the channel, but fearful of Hitler's temper, his aides decided not to inform him until they had more information. And thus, as Hitler drifted off into a medically aided sleep, he was unaware that a vast armada of aircraft carrying paratroopers were already cruising into Normandy, unaware that the dreams of a thousand-year Reich were about to be shattered, unaware that history was tying a noose around his neck. As the final minutes of June 5th ticked away, at bases across England, an air armada unlike anything history had ever seen before was beginning to mobilize and lift off into the night. The large majority of the aircraft carrying paratroopers into Normandy were Douglas Seaforce Skytrains, more commonly known by their British designation, Dakota. The C-47 is one of history's truly great aircraft, a military variant of the DC-3 airliner an aircraft credited with making air travel practical, American and British C-47s would eventually drop some 50,000 paratroopers into Normandy. They would also provide a vital logistical lifeline, dropping supplies to the troops until airfields could be captured and secured for them to land, their rugged design making them ideal for getting in and out of ex-Luftwaffe bases. However, it was a dangerous task, even with the softening up of air defenses. The aircraft were relatively slow, and when it came to deploying the paratroopers, they had to descend around 600 feet, where they were exposed to all manner of anti-aircraft fire. Upon leaping from the aircraft, a static line automatically deployed the trooper's parachutes, but if the chute failed or became tangled up, the paratrooper would have just seconds to release his emergency parachutes, but with less time to slow his descent, this would almost certainly result in a harder landing, which could lead to a broken leg or ankle. If all went well, however, the paratroopers typically took 35 seconds to descend from their aircraft, during which time they would feel extraordinarily exposed to keen-eyed German snipers making out their silhouettes against the night sky behind them. To help draw enemy fire, Hundreds of paradummies, known as Ruperts and Oscars to the British and Americans respectively, were dropped. In the darkness, these could not be distinguished from real paratroopers. Parachuting into Normandy that night were elements of the US 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions, who were assigned various objectives on the Cotentin Peninsula west of the US beach designated as Utah. However, all did not go according to plan as the aircraft took heavy fire during their approach to the drop zones, and many were lost before and after their troops had disembarked. First Lieutenant Robert P. Mathias of the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment from the 82nd would attain the tragic accolade of being the first American to be killed on D-Day when the C-47 he was aboard was hit by anti-aircraft fire, mortally wounding him before he had a chance to jump with his men. In the chaos, many paratroopers missed their drop zones often by miles, and the units that were landed were often in disarray. Despite these setbacks, the paratroopers fought fiercely against German forces behind the beaches at Normandy, destroying artillery guns, disrupting supply routes, and diverting German attention away from the landings. 
However, not all the members of the airborne units deployed that night went in under the canopies of parachutes. Many went in via gliders that would be towed to release points near their targets and then piloted down in what was effectively a controlled crash. Gliders had the advantage of being able to carry larger equipment for the airborne troops, but they came with a whole host of their own dangers too. They were just as vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire as their powered counterparts, and landing them safely was often a tricky undertaking that, if you got it wrong, could see as many troopers killed or injured before they even had a chance to fight. The British Airspeed Horsa was capable of transporting up to 30 fully equipped troops or various light vehicles and field guns. Yet, despite its size and the lack of a power plant, it was a surprisingly agile aircraft in flight. Given that it was highly unlikely that any significant number would survive their first flight into battle, the Horsa was manufactured using wood, which helped alleviate the strain on the supply chain for strategic metals. The Hammerclaw was another large glider, designed primarily to carry light tanks, 17-pounder field guns, or large numbers of supplies in a single flight. While an American design, it was fielded solely by the British and was designed around specifications outlined by Winston Churchill himself in 1941. It was, however, the Waco CG-4 that was the most numerically significant glider of the war. The CG-4, known as the Hadrian in British service, was smaller than the Horsa, only being able to carry either 13 combat-ready troops with equipment, a single jeep, or a single 75mm howitzer, but its smaller size gave it the advantage of being able to land in tighter areas, thus greatly expanding the number of potential landing sites. Featuring a welded tubular fuselage with canvas covering the wings skinned in thin plywood, the CG-4 also had other advantages. The payload area, for example, was made more easily accessible thanks to the nose and cockpit being mounted on a hinge, allowing it to swing upwards, exposing the whole cargo area. Because of the often violent nature of glider landings, a safety cable was also fitted, designed to attach to any vehicle being carried inside the cargo area. Should the vehicle break free when the glider hit the ground and slide forward towards the cockpit, the cable would lift the hinged cockpit upwards to the unloading position, thus saving the pilots from being run over by their own cargo. The British 6th Airborne Division made extensive use of gliders in capturing the bridges over the River Orne and the Conn Canal. Taking the bridges relatively quickly, they then had to dig in and fight tooth and nail to keep them until reinforcements could arrive. Of all the beaches on D-Day, the 10-mile stretch designated as Omaha was by far the most heavily defended, and thus the beach was hit by a force of heavy bombers prior to the landing taking place. However, the bombers had to contend with thick clouds blanketing the area, and so they had to effectively bomb blind. Concerned their weapons might stray out to sea and hit the Allied Armada, the crews proved too cautious in their aiming, and many of the bombs missed their targets, falling instead inland on the French countryside. A particularly concerning obstacle for both US beaches was a gun battery located at Pointe du Oc, a 100-foot-tall cliff that provided a wide arc of fire over the surrounding areas, including the beaches where thousands of Americans would be landing in the early hours. Therefore, prior to the main force arriving, 225 men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Rudder, were given the unenviable task of scaling the cliffs with ropes and ladders in an effort to destroy the gun battery. The Rangers approached in 12 landing craft and two DUKW amphibious trucks, but took heavy fire as they neared the beach. One landing craft was lost, with all but one of its occupants. They then began placing the 100-foot-long ladders borrowed from the London Fire Brigade up against the cliffs and began to scale them, all the while still taking heavy enemy machine gun and mortar fire. With Allied warships providing fire support, the Rangers reached the top of the cliff, where they discovered that their intended targets, the field guns, had been moved. The Rangers eventually located the weapons, left unguarded in an orchard over half a kilometre to the south, and proceeded to destroy them. 
Their mission was accomplished, but now the Rangers had to contend with heavy combat with the Germans over the next 24 hours, until they would be relieved by additional reinforcements, by which time they'd suffered 77 men killed and 152 wounded. If the banks of well-protected German gunners were not enough, the beach was also protected by a wealth of obstacles, both natural and man-made, that the landing craft would have to navigate. A difficult job made worse by incredibly powerful winds that blew more than one flat-sided landing craft off course. At 630 hours, the first wave comprising men of the 1st and 29th Infantry Divisions made their landings amidst what must have seen like an impenetrable wall of bullets. In the spaces between the landing craft and positions of some cover in front of the Germans, bodies of fallen US troops soon began to litter the sands, barbed wire and fixed obstacles slowing the American advance, allowing them to be sprayed by German machine guns. There was so much death on Omaha Beach in the opening rounds of the invasion that when landing craft were seen leaving the beach again, the Germans mistakenly told their commander, General Dietrich Kreis, that the American troops had been driven off. Kreis then ordered many of the troops guarding Omaha to relocate to fight off the British forces at Gold Beach. This was a major error, for the landing craft were simply returning back to the ships to pick up more US troops to throw at the German defenses. Yet, despite this, even with the aid of combat engineers blasting away at fixed defenses, warships providing fire support, and tanks being landed to support assaults against the defenders, the US troops failed to secure their beachhead and link up with the British forces from Gold Beach on D-Day itself. Instead, however, they managed to secure two strong points on the beach from where, over the following days, they were able to offload men and supplies and finally clear out the German defenders, securing the beach and linking up with the Allied units from other beaches. A number of journalists accompanied the troops ashore to report on what they saw. Among them was a driven and determined young woman named Martha Gellhorn. Wife of author Ernest Hemingway, Gellhorn was not actually authorized to report on the landings, and so, in a rather daring move, stowed away aboard a hospital ship and then impersonated a stretcher bearer in order to join medical teams going ashore to retrieve the wounded. Given the chaos of the dramatic events that were unfolding around her, she was able to pull off this deception and become the only woman to land at Normandy on D-Day, allowing her to give a first-hand account of the scene. Her article, published in the Collier magazine, reads as following. Everyone was violently busy on that crowded, dangerous shore. The pebbles were the size of apples and feet deep, and we stumbled up a road that a huge road shovel was scooping out. We walked with the utmost care between the narrowly placed white tape lines that marked the mine-cleared path, and headed for a tent marked with a red cross. Everyone agreed that the beach was a stinker, and that it would be a great pleasure to get the hell out of here sometime. In planning for D-Day, Utah Beach was the last to be selected, and it extended over 11 miles of shoreline, making it the largest beach hit on June 6th. As the westernmost beach, the main aim of establishing a beachhead at Utah was to give the Allies a suitable location to prepare for an assault on the strategic harbor town of Cherbourg, some 35 miles away. Assaulting the beach was the US-7 Corps, who faced relatively light resistance when compared to the horrors of Omaha. The main German defensive position composed of a single, powerful 88mm artillery piece, which was soon destroyed, and the German defenders manning it surrendered. Within three hours of the start of the assault, all three major entrances to the beach had been secured, permitting 20,000 troops and 1,700 vehicles to cross Utah Beach on D-Day. Among those fighting on Utah Beach was Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the eldest son of former US President Theodore Roosevelt. Brigadier General Roosevelt was serving with the 4th Infantry Division when it stormed Utah Beach, going ashore with his men despite his rank and age. Being 56, he was the oldest Allied soldier at the front. Roosevelt took command of almost every aspect of his division's operations that day, allowing him to directly address the many problems that emerged. 
It was even reported that, in some instances, he directed trucks and tanks like a traffic cop whilst personally taking enemy fire, all the while sharing poetry and amusing anecdotes with frightened soldiers under his command. For his gallantry, he was recommended for the Distinguished Service Cross. Tragically, however, just over a month later on July 12th, he passed away due to a heart attack. Afterwards, the recommendation was upgraded to the Medal of Honor, the highest award in the United States for valor, which he was awarded posthumously. His citation read, quote, Although the enemy had the beach under constant direct fire, Brigadier General Roosevelt moved from one locality to another, rallying men around him, directed, and personally led them against the enemy. Under his seasoned, precise, calm, and unfaltering leadership, assault troops reduced beach strongpoints and rapidly moved inland, with minimum casualties. He thus contributed substantially to the successful establishment of the beachhead in France. Sandwiched between Omaha Beach to the west and Juneau to the east, Gold Beach was a 10-mile stretch of shoreline earmarked for assaults primarily by the British 50th Northumberland Infantry Division and the 47 Royal Marine Commando, and their primary objective was to capture the harbour town of Aramanche, which had been selected as an ideal site for the building of a Mulberry Harbour. Waiting for the British at Gold Beach were elements of the Wehrmacht 716th Infantry Division, which included a large proportion of Osttruppen, Poles and Russians who had been conscripted to serve in the German army. Additionally, the beach was protected by a battery of four 155mm guns, positioned around half a mile inland. The British went ashore one hour after the Americans hit Utah and Omaha, owing to the tide at Gold Beach. Unfortunately for the British, an unexpected northwest wind meant that many of the underwater obstacles and mines placed by the Germans remained submerged as the British landing craft began to storm the beach. Unable to identify all of them, the British force would suffer the loss of some 20 landing craft before they could get their troops and equipment to shore. Owing to the weather, the swimming Shermans had to be moved closer to shore before they could be put into the water followed later by Churchill AVREs, but by midday, they were fully engaged in driving the Wehrmacht troops from their positions. However, they would continue to take heavy fire from artillery guns at the Lehemel strongpoint until mid-afternoon, when the AVREs destroyed the fortification protecting them. By day's end, the British force had pushed inland, securing the beachhead, and allowing construction of the Mulberry Pier to begin but this came at the cost of 400 British casualties. At just two miles long, Juno Beach was the smallest of the D-Day beaches, being positioned between Gold and Sword to the west and east respectively, and was the objective of the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division, the Canadian 2nd Armoured Brigade, and the British No. 48 Commando. The beach's small size only served to exacerbate Allied planners' fears concerning a reef in the waters leading up to the beach, requiring landings to begin at 745 hours, when the tide was at its highest, reducing the risk to the landing craft. However, it turned out that it would not be nature's obstacles that would savage the Canadians, but instead, the German mines littering the coastline a horrifying one-third of all landing crafts struck mines as they advanced towards the beach, where the German 716th Infantry Division's 736th Regiment plus the 430th Ost Eastern Battalion, again comprised of Russians and Poles, were waiting for them. The defenders fought a bloody and brutal battle to drive the Canadians off the beach, but the Canadians stubbornly refused to let the beach turn into another Dieppe, and they kept the pressure up, eventually forcing the Germans to withdraw. By the end of the day, some 21,400 troops had landed at Juneau, and the Canadians had pushed further inland than any from the D-Day landings, capturing an airfield at Carpiquet. However, it had cost the Canadians 946 casualties, of which 340 were killed when their landing craft struck mines in the first hour of the invasion. One of those serving on Juno Beach that day was a young Canadian officer named James Duan, who would later go on to worldwide fame 
portraying the iconic character of Scotty in the Star Trek TV series and movies. Duan was a commissioned lieutenant with the 14th Field Artillery Regiment of the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division, and on D-Day, he was tasked with leading his men across a field littered with anti-tank mines in order to capture a German position, with Duan killing two German snipers in the process. At around 1120 hours, during a lull in the fighting, he stopped to smoke a cigarette before making his way back to his men, when a terrified Canadian machine gunner opened up fire on him, believing him to be a German. He was shot six times, four in the leg, one in the chest, and one which took off his right middle finger. In a classic tale of luck in wartime, his life was saved by the metal cigarette tin he carried in his chest pocket, which absorbed the shot aimed at his chest, which almost certainly would have killed him. Later in life, while filming Star Trek, efforts had to be made to disguise the finger he lost on D-Day, with a hand double used for close-up shots that were required. Sword was the easternmost beach on D-Day, and prior to the war was a popular tourist destination, with numerous summer houses dotting the coastline. Many of these houses had been destroyed by the German defenders to improve their field of fire, while others had been reinforced and turned into makeshift bunkers, with an anti-tank ditch being dug behind the sea wall. The beach was also defended by two field gun positions, with 75mm guns based at Merville and harder-hitting 155mm guns at Le Havre and these received special attention from Allied aircraft and paratroopers to prevent them from interfering in the landings. Beginning at 725 hours, when the tide was right, Sword was assaulted by the British Army's 3rd Division, supported by the 27th Armoured Brigade and contingents of British and Free French Commandos. The primary objective of the forces landing on Sword Beach was to capture a series of important bridges three and a half miles inland, on the River Orne and the Caen Canal. These bridges were being held by British airborne forces, while the commandos had to fight their way west to link up with Canadian forces from Juno Beach. However, having landed on the beaches, further advancement was slow going, thanks in part to the heavy congestion of Allied forces squashed into the narrow streets and side roads of the French coastal towns, and fierce German resistance from the town of Wistrahammer. Through the day, it became apparent that any hope of linking with the Canadians before nightfall had been dashed when, to the British's horror, they found themselves under attack by the 21st Panzer Division. These skilled German panzer crews made powerful attacks on the British, including the men holding the bridge on the River Orne and helping to block them from linking with the Canadians at Juneau, but their effectiveness was hampered by disruptions to their chain of command and overwhelming air power pitted against them. As Allied gliders landed nearby their positions in late evening, the panzer crews feared they were being overrun. They retreated, unaware that the gliders had actually missed their designated landing zones and had landed there purely by mistake. At sea, three German E-boats of the 5th Torpedo Squadron slipped from their moorings and dashed out to attack the many Allied vessels supporting the landing, perhaps hoping to repeat the carnage they inflicted during Operation Tiger. The E-boats arrived off Sword Beach to find the scene largely obscured by a smoke screen, forcing them in closer. Emerging from the smoke, they were confronted by the awe-inspiring sight of hundreds of Allied vessels, ranging from small landing craft to enormous battleships. They dispatched 18 torpedoes into the Allied force, but only succeeded in sinking a free Norwegian destroyer, the Svenna, before being forced to retreat. This was the end of German naval interference on D-Day, as Allied air power was so overwhelming that to put any warships or U-boats to sea in daylight was practically suicidal. However, German sailors did continue the fight by manning coastal guns alongside their Wehrmacht Konrads. As for Germany's air force, a handful of sorties were ordered against the ships supporting the landings and the beaches, the most notable encounter perhaps being when two Fokker Wolf FW-190 fighters swooped down and strafed British troops at Sword Beach. Two-engined Stuka dive bombers also made desperate daylight attacks, but were savaged by Allied fighters at almost every step of the way. During the day, 28,500 men crossed Sword Beach, 
but in the hard-fought campaign to capture it, they sustained 683 casualties. The British and French forces would finally link up with the Canadians from Juneau the next day. Yet, despite the horrors the troops were seeing, many of them just young men barely beginning their adult lives, it seems the old carry-on spirit had not been a casualty that day. As David Teacher, a member of the RAF 71 Beach Unit said afterwards, slowly, slowly we overcame all the nightmares. There was no lack of humor. A soldier coming ashore asked, is this a private beach? I was promised a private beach. If not, I am not staying. And we heard, my mother told me not to travel by air. She thought it was much safer by sea. The initial German response to D-Day was one of confusion as to what to do. Germany's rigid command structure relied heavily on orders from the Führer, but of course he was still asleep as the Allies landed on the beaches. The picture was still somewhat confused to German high command, and having labored for so long on the belief that any landing away from Calais was a decoy, they argued over whether or not to wake Hitler until they knew more as to what was actually taking place. It wouldn't be until approximately 10 a.m. with the arrival of Albert Speer, the German armaments minister, that Hitler was finally awoken. According to the author and historian Stephen Ambrose, who penned the epic book Band of Brothers, Hitler's response was rather unexpected, uttering the words, the news couldn't be better. Goebbels too noted that the news of the invasion seemed to come as a relief to him, as though they could finally get on with the war in the West. Hitler was both supremely confident of his men in Normandy holding off the Allies, and stuck to his belief that Calais was where the real invasion would come over the next few days. Now the German high command was awake, Hitler began to organize his response. One of his first acts was to reluctantly release two reserve panzer divisions near Paris to be sent to Normandy. However, he was told that Allied air power over Normandy and the surrounding areas was so intense that they would have to wait until nightfall to move, lest they be destroyed on the roads by Allied fighter bombers. This crucial delay worked in favor of the Allies, who, by nightfall, were already pushing beyond the beaches. Incredibly, despite the enormity of what was happening in Normandy, Hitler still took time in the afternoon to attend a reception for the new Austrian foreign minister in Salzburg, perhaps hinting that he failed to fully grasp the reality of what was happening in France. As darkness fell in the final hours of June 6th, the German U-boats finally ventured out to sea in an effort to disrupt the landing operations. Even with the cover of darkness, the fear of air attack was still there, as Allied warplanes were now using radar to detect them on the surface. However, they did not arrive until the daylight hours of June 7th, allowing Allied air and sea power to swoop in attacking them as they recharged their batteries on the surface. Two U-boats were sunk and four more heavily damaged, forcing the German Navy to abandon any attack with U-boats not yet fitted with snorkels that could allow them to run their diesel engines while submerged. The only U-boats with snorkels were based in the south in the Bay of Biscay and in the north of Norway to better allow them to attack convoys from the United States and it would take them until mid-June to break through the dense Allied anti-submarine forces arranged against them, by which time the invasion force was dug in and breaking out into France. German resistance remained strong around the beachheads of Normandy for days afterwards, and even as the Allied troops began to move out, pockets of German resistance remained, even as they became encircled by the Allied invasion force. One German unit manning a bunker situated between Sword and Juno beaches, which housed a radar installation, held out for a staggering 12 days after D-Day, despite having found themselves well behind Allied lines at that point. After establishing their beachhead, over the summer, the Allied force would grow and become more powerful. Eventually, it would burst outward and charge across Europe, pushing Hitler's army back as Nazi Germany was choked to death by the Allied onslaught. 11 months and one day after D-Day, Germany surrendered, and the war in Europe was over. Looking back on June 6th and the days that followed, we tend to take for granted the success of the D-Day landings. 
They are remembered in the West, particularly in the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada, as amongst the most glorious of days when the greatest generation rose to the challenge. Sadly, like many battles throughout history, D-Day has become romanticized in such a way as to overlook the horrific reality of what took place. It's easy to quote casualty figures as a way of measuring the cost of what truly happened, but the battle for Normandy no doubt damaged the lives of hundreds of thousands who, while they survived, had to live with the memories of the horror they saw. And perhaps it is really for them that when we celebrate their victory every year on June 6th, we recognize the price they paid for freedom in Europe. It is because we enjoy such freedoms now in the 21st century afforded to us by those incredible soldiers that probably more than any other military operation in history, D-Day has left us pondering many questions that begin with the words, what if? What if German naval forces had repeated their success during Operation Tiger on the landing ships? What if Eisenhower had ignored Stagg's recommendation to delay and the D-Day landings went ahead amidst the bad weather of June 5th. What if Hitler had listened to Rommel and placed tanks closer to the beaches prior to D-Day? What if, for any one of a million reasons, D-Day failed? What then? Atomic bombs dropped in Europe, perhaps? Or maybe a Europe that would end the war fully under the control of the Soviet Empire? Thankfully, these what-ifs and many more will always remain simply questions for debate, thanks to the success of June 6th, 1944. Operation Overlord, D-Day.